This morning, I, I'm going to be speaking on a text I, I've never spoken on in 40 years of ministry. Uh, Christmas, I'll be honest, is one of the hardest messages to do because you think, well, everybody knows that Christmas story. I've preached on it many, many times. And then I realize I've never preached on this part of the Christmas story. And it must be in the Bible for a reason. So we're going to speak about Matthew chapter 2, verses 12 through 23. Verse 12 picks up with the Magi who have just visited Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And uh, verse 12 says, Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Then, when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi, because they hadn't gone back and reported to him about Jesus, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. I uh, had decided to speak about the Christmas massacre of the children in Bethlehem before I saw a Babylon Bee spoof. How many of you know what the Babylon Bee is? It's, it's a Christian satirical website. They poke fun at all sorts of funny things and um, in the Christian world, but this particular spoof was called uh, The Christmas Slaughter, so I had to read it, and, uh, and they were making fun of the Hallmark Channel, and they said instead of running the usual light, fluffy Christmas movies, the article said that this year Hallmark will run one called The Christmas Slaughter, and it's about a young man who goes home for Christmas where he meets a wonderful young lady from the farm, but it turns out that she's actually a demonic axe murderer. And uh, 
I think as I thought about it, the bee was satirizing the way that we often picture Christmas as this nice, sentimental uh, holiday that is totally out of touch with the real world that we live in and see on the news every day. You know, Christmas cards will picture Mary and Joseph looking serenely down on the baby Jesus in the manger, and the angels are hovering overhead, and the star is overhead, and the shepherds and wise men are all kneeling before, and then the verse on the card will read, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Well, other than being historically inaccurate, such Christmas cards really convey uh, a message that isn't the total picture that the Bible gives us about the Christmas story. Uh, The historical inaccuracy is that the star and the wise men were not at the manger. Uh, They came months later. Uh, Joseph and Mary were living in a house, and um, they were still in Bethlehem, but the manger scene was gone, and there weren't necessarily three wise men. They brought three gifts, but we don't know if there were three wise men. There could have been 30 of them bringing three gifts or a couple of them bringing three gifts. We don't know. Uh, And we don't know either that they were kings, since we sing we three kings of Orient are. But anyway, apart from that, um, they came and uh, worshiped Jesus, and shortly after they left, as we have just read, the scene was anything but peaceful. Mary and Joseph had to flee for their lives with their young son and uh, go to a foreign country so that this paranoid King Herod would not uh, kill the baby. And then he massacred all the young boys to and under in Bethlehem. Don't know how many there were. Scholars guess anywhere from a dozen to uh, two or three dozen at the most, but still a tragic, tragic scene. And so the complete Christmas story is not just this fairy tale, peaceful, you know, everything is wonderful on earth kind of thing, but it's a story about refugees and and uh, tyrant Rulers who are slaughtering off their people. Very much like the world that we read about in the news every day, isn't it? With refugees and all of the murder and killing going on. But in all of this, the story shows us God sovereignly in control of the whole scene, working out His eternal purpose, as it says in Matthew 1, 21, that His Son Jesus will save his people, from their sins. And so Herod's massacre of these little babies in Jerusalem uh, teaches us some important lessons about God and about suffering, namely that we can trust in our sovereign God even when it seems that evil is prevailing in this world. The news, of course, daily just bombards us with uh, the suffering that has caused the brutality of ISIS and what they're doing, other Islamic terrorists, the civil war in Syria, uh, the uh, genocide of the Rohingya people there in Myanmar, 
other atrocities around the world. And even closer to home, we've had the mass murderers at the nightclub in Florida, then at the concert in Las Vegas, and then, of course, uh, our brothers and sisters at the church in Texas recently. But all of those kinds of tragedies will cause skeptics to ask, you know, how can your God be both loving and all-powerful and allow this kind of uh, atrocity to happen in the world? And sadly, there are even some who claim to be evangelical theologians. They're called open theists. And they argue that God is not sovereign over such events. They say that God has no control over human free will, so they make free will sovereign, not God. And they say that God doesn't ordain the future. In fact, they say God doesn't even know what will happen before it happens. I don't know how they explain the book of Revelation. seems he knows what happens there. But uh, that's their argument, and they're trying to get God off the hook for the problem of evil in the world, but in doing so, they really deny the very character of God. And uh, so this morning, just want to emphasize two main points. And the first one is that God is sovereign even when evil seems to prevail. That is an important truth we have to affirm. God is sovereign even when evil seems to prevail. And of course we see that at the end of Jesus' life when God ordained the cross. Thankfully, I'm glad he did. But the cross was the ultimate evil that's ever happened. And it didn't thwart God's purpose, it fulfilled God's purpose. And um, so that, that's the story here at the beginning. Uh, we see three things here in uh, Matthew's account of this Bethlehem massacre. First of all, it shows us that God is not pass a passive spectator in the theater of human events. He ordains all things for his own glory. We know that he chose both the time and the place for Jesus to be born. The time in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, Paul said, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law so that he might redeem those who are under the law uh, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Regarding the place, the Magi, the wise men, ask in Matthew 2.2, 2, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw, saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And the chief priests and the scribes knew from Micah 5.2, Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. God ordained that. That's where it happened. God was in charge of that. Uh, also, we know that God clearly directed these magi uh, to come through the star. And they had to make a long and difficult journey to Bethlehem to see this young child. Somehow, God revealed to them that this one who was born was the king of the Jews. Um, who were these guys, the Magi? Well, they were probably astrologers, and they had an interest in things like dreams and magic and mysterious uh, references to the future. 
Matthew, of course, knew from the Old Testament that God condemns astrology, so it's not endorsing it here. I believe it's an example of the grace of God revealing uh, the message of salvation to those who were misguided. Um, Dr. D.A. Carson observes, Matthew neither condemns nor sanctions it, meaning astrology. Instead, he contrasts the eagerness of the Magi to worship Jesus, despite their limited knowledge, with the apathy of the Jewish leaders and the hostility of Herod's court, all of whom had the scriptures to inform them. So that's the picture that Matthew is laying out for us. Uh, numerous speculations have been made about the nature of the star, and those are interesting to read about. My own hunch, view, it's not a conviction, is it was probably a supernatural phenomenon. Um, it could have been, of course, uh, some constellation of, uh, of, or a conjunction of all the planets. It could have been a supernova, a comet, or some natural phenomenon, but it seems to me it was some miraculous means that God used to direct these men to Bethlehem and announce the birth of Jesus to these men. Also, as far as God's being active in the story, he actively warns the, the Magi not to return to Herod and fall into his trap of telling him who this child was. Uh, they return uh, a different way to their own land. He warns Joseph in the story to flee to Egypt. He directs him again to return to Israel. And then again, he directs him not to settle in Judea, but to move north into the region of Galilee and to the city of Nazareth. But the point is, the Bible is clear that God was actively involved in the birth of his son. And in fact, when you look through the Bible, God is actively involved in everything from the weather to feeding the birds, to the movement of nations and the events that are on a worldwide scale, uh, major and minor events. And so the application is we can trust that God is involved in both the minor and the major events of our lives. Minor events, some frustrating driver in front of you is driving you crazy. Well, you have to say that's from the Lord. What's the Lord trying to teach me in this? I still am trying to learn patience. Uh, and then, of course, the major events, you know, things like cancer or other disease that threatens your life. Now, the Bible is clear. We are not robots who have no power of choice. But in a way we cannot understand, God works all of human choices together to accomplish his sovereign plan, and it's all for his glory. But because he is not a passive spectator in human events, it means that we can trust him and we can seek him in everything that happens in life because nothing happens by chance or by accident, but by his good and sovereign loving hand. A second lesson that's here is that God then directs his people during times of confusion and danger and fear. In Matthew's account of the birth narrative, God frequently uses dreams to direct 
people who are involved in the story. Uh, we saw during the worship time that it was through a dream that he directs Joseph not to divorce the pregnant virgin Mary, but rather to take her as his wife. Then he uses a dream in verse 12 to warn the Magi not to return to Herod, but to go home a diff by a different direction. Uh, he uses a dream to direct Joseph to flee to Egypt, and another dream to return to Israel, and then another dream yet to uh, go up north, not to settle in Judea. And that raises the question, well, does God use dreams today to direct his people. Um, it's interesting when you look in the New Testament, uh, in Matthew, for example, there's only one other dream other than the birth narrative, and that's the one by Pilate's wife in chapter 27, when she warns Pilate, have nothing to do with that righteous man. And then you look throughout the New Testament, and there's only one other reference to dreams in the entire New Testament, and that's in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost when citing the prophet Joel, he says, your, young, uh, your old men, I should say, shall dream dreams. Um, there are, of course, a few Old Testament references to dreams, um, mostly in the story of Joseph and then Daniel, not many other. God in the Old Testament warns his people not to be led astray by false prophets who will use their dreams to entice people to worship idols and other gods and forget his name. Um, today, uh, I hear many stories of how God is using dreams and visions to bring Muslim people to genuine saving faith. And so uh, we shouldn't deny that he can use dreams today. But I confess, I have never had a significant dream in 70 years. I, I get these dreams all the time that I'm supposed to preach, and I am not ready to preach, and I'm panicked. And then I get there, and everything is wrong. You know, the auditorium isn't set up, the mics aren't working, something's wrong. And I know it's because of the stress of preaching. I, I used to get dreams when I got out of college, that it was the end of the semester and I hadn't been to class and the final was coming and I was panicked, you know. I didn't know what I was going to do. Again, the stress, but I don't view those as dreams from God necessarily. Um, God's normal means of directing us is through the wisdom of his word. And so if you're in a time of trial and you need direction, Read the Bible, not by opening and pointing, but by interpreting it in its context and seek the counsel of a godly, mature believer. If you're interested, I did a sermon five years ago, uh, right on New Year's, near New Year's, on um, how to know God's will, and you can read that online. But the point is, if you're in a time of confusion or fear, um, seek the Lord through his word. And what happens is often, and this is why it's important, just read the Bible consecutively. And as you do, often in your normal Bible reading, God will impress a verse on you right out of the text. You go, wow, that's directly relevant to what I'm facing right now. And, you know, that you can uh, understand as being from the Holy Spirit to give you comfort and guidance in your 
time of trial. Also, be careful. If any dream goes against the Bible, it's not from God. The Bible trumps dreams. So don't make any major decision based on a dream alone. That's pretty shaky. Um, Go to God's word. So God is sovereign then, even when evil seems to prevail. And he's not passive. He is active. And he does direct his people in times of difficulty. And then a third lesson here is there are times when evil does seem to prevail. um, But God uses evil people and their evil deeds to accomplish his holy purpose. And here's the kicker. He's not responsible for what they did. And that's hard to sort that out, isn't it? But the Bible many, many times shows how God ordains everything, including some horrible evil, but he's not responsible for it. The one who did it is. I just this morning in my quiet time was reading in Isaiah 10. And God said uh, how he is going to discipline Assyria, whom he calls the rod of my anger. So he used Assyria to discipline Israel for their sin, and then God judged Assyria for their evil that they did on Israel. Go figure how all that works. That's beyond my ability. But here we've got Herod. Herod, if you read about the guy, was one of the most despicable characters in human history. Um, When the Magi got to Jerusalem, Herod was almost 70 years old. He was ill with the disease that would kill him in a short while. Um, Over the course of his life, Herod had ten wives, so Hollywood has nothing on Herod. Uh, He went through ten wives. He murdered one of them. He was in constant conflict with his adult sons. Uh, He put them in prison. He executed two of them. As he faced death, he knew he was going to die, and he didn't want the nation to rejoice So he ordered his uh, 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 soldiers to go out and round up many of the Jewish leaders with the instruction, when I die, slaughter them so there will be national mourning, not rejoicing at my death. Uh, Thankfully, they didn't obey his order. But five days before he died, he executed another one of his sons who was a threat to his throne. So murdering off a bunch of babies in Bethlehem was no big deal to Herod. This guy was a murderous guy. He was paranoid about anybody who was a threat to his throne. And if there is a baby in Bethlehem who may be a future king, even though Herod's you know, got one foot in the grave, he's going to eliminate him. That's who this guy was. But you know, there have been many wicked rulers down through the centuries And none of them have thwarted God's plan. I just mentioned the Assyrians. And uh, God used them to wipe out the northern tribes of Israel because of their idolatry. Uh, He used Nebuchadnezzar later, the Babylonian king, to wipe out the southern kingdom because of their sin and destroy even the temple and Jerusalem and take most of Israel or Judea into uh, captivity in Babylon. And then... He humbled Nebuchadnezzar with a strange disease where he ran out in the fields like a wild animal for seven years. And uh, the point of all of that, according to Daniel 4.25, was to teach Nebuchadnezzar that the Most High is the ruler 
over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whom he wishes. And Proverbs 21.1 declares, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. And I've been praying that verse about the situation in, in China because the current dictator of China is clamping down on Christians and churches, and he put over uh, the western province, Xinjiang province, the guy that uh, just dominated Tibet, and he is causing him to wipe out and suppress the uh, Uyghur people there. But he is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. The Lord can turn him wherever he wishes. Uh, concerning Pharaoh and his enslaving the Israeli people, um, God says in Romans 9.17, For this very purpose, I raised you up. So, Pharaoh got raised up by God, here's why, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed throughout all the earth, throughout the whole earth. And Scripture has multiple examples of God using even Satan and the demons for his purpose, and yet he holds everyone who does evil accountable for that evil. And uh, that's a head-scratcher, I admit. But here's how it applies. There are many misconceptions today that if you trust in Jesus as your Savior, then He's going to protect you from all problems and trials. Or, if you have problems and trials, you can just name and claim your deliverance by faith, and God has to do it. It's like God is your genie. And so you just pray in Jesus' name and claim the victory, and it's yours. And that's faulty theology. Tell that to all the martyrs. People of faith who suffered terribly and yet they died. And the book of Revelation reveals in chapter 6 that God has the specific number of martyrs ordained. And when that number is filled up, God is going to pour out his wrath on all those who murdered them. He is going to vindicate those people with eternal glory and rewards, and um, even in the book of Revelation, he's going to use Satan and the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet and all of those to accomplish his purpose, and then he is going to send them forever into the lake of fire and judge them. And so when bad things happen to good people uh, because of evil people, don't conclude God has abandoned you don't conclude that somehow your faith is defective because you're suffering. It may be in the will of God, and our purpose is to glorify Him, but He is sovereign even when it seems that evil is prevailing. That's the first lesson here from this uh, dark side of the Christmas story. A second lesson here is because God is sovereign then, we can trust Him even when evil seems to prevail. And that is such an important lesson. I have seen over the years many Christians, even some in full-time Christian service, who suffer and they get bitter and angry at God. They shake their fist at Him and say, I trusted you, I was serving you, and now this happens. And they walk away from the faith. 
and they didn't understand the role of suffering in the life of a believer. This account of Herod's slaughter of these children, babies in Bethlehem, gives at least three reasons why we should trust the Lord even when it seems that evil is prevailing. The first one is we can trust God even when we don't understand and when evil seems to prevail because His ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As I was thinking through this story, I, I thought, you know, if God had just asked my opinion, I have an easy solution. Just wipe out Herod. I mean, the man's got one foot in the grave anyway. He's sick. And later, in Acts chapter 12, God did that with uh, Herod Agrippa I. You know, he was murderous against the church. And God struck him with worms and he died. Boom. So it would have been no problem for God just to say, Herod, you're done, man. And prevented this tragedy of these babies in Bethlehem. Think about the lifelong heartache of all those grieving parents in Bethlehem who lost their sons to this evil tyrant. And yet, God allowed this tragedy, this atrocity, Matthew says in verse 18, to fulfill what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Jeremiah's prophecy in the first place referred to the slaughter of the residents of Jerusalem and Judea when Nebuchadnezzar's armies came in and slaughtered off many, carried the rest off captive to Babylon and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. You can read the book of Lamentations, which is an extended poem about that horrible slaughter. But Matthew sees that prophecy as having a double fulfillment. Once then, and again now, uh, at this happening in Bethlehem. And uh, the point is, neither tragedy thwarted God's plan, but rather they fulfilled His prophetic word. Both tragedies fulfilled what God had predicted through His prophet. And here's the, um, you might call it the jewel in the dung, okay? You, you've got the dung of this horrible event two times. But Jeremiah 31, where the prophecy occurred, if you know your Bible, is also the place where God predicted the new covenant. And the new covenant is our salvation, where God says their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. And so right in the middle of this horrible slaughter in Jerusalem, you've got this hope of the promise of salvation. 
And then you come to Matthew chapter 2, and you have this horrible slaughter of these babies in Bethlehem. And what's Matthew 2 about? The birth of the Savior, whom God had promised for centuries, who comes to save us from our sins. And so I believe in that way, God assures believers who are going through difficult trials, and he does this even in the book of Revelation where um, the martyrs cry out and say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And God says, hang on, we're not quite through with this yet. And give them a, a white robe, tell them to wait. And then at the end of Revelation, when Jesus comes back, he rewards them, he punishes their oppressors. And so, even though we don't understand God's ways, we can trust God when we see these kinds of things that we just scratch our head and say, that doesn't make sense. A second lesson here is that we can trust God because he sent his son into an evil world to solve the ultimate human problem. Uh, it's significant that Jesus wasn't born in a protective bubble in a palace with all kinds of servants waiting on him and guards protecting him and all of that kind of thing that you might say, this is the Savior, folks. we got to protect him. No, he was born, as you know, in a stable. And then his life was threatened even from infancy. Later, of course, he suffered horribly at the hands of sinners on the cross. And yet that death on the cross is God's answer to the root problem of human sin that causes all of these atrocities. And when Jesus comes again in power and glory, the New Testament promises that he's going to judge, uh, defeat the devil. He's going to judge all who are still in rebellion against him. And then he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and there won't be any death or crying, mourning or crying or pain. But here's the important point. To reap the blessings of God's salvation, you have to come to the cross as a guilty sinner and receive what Jesus did for you there. You have to trust in his death on your behalf to pay the penalty for your sin. You know, there's a danger when we talk about evil characters like Herod or these guys in ISIS. We all wipe our brow and say, whew, I'm sure glad I'm not like those guys. I mean, those guys are just pure scum and evil. But me, I've never killed anyone. And I'm a pretty good person. And so I think it'll go okay with me. That's a faulty conclusion. Because the Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That all is comprehensive. Every single one of us has sinned. But the good news is, God offers forgiveness of sins and mercy to every sinner who will come and trust in what Jesus did on the cross. Paul goes on in Romans 6.23, and he says, the wages of sin is death. And notice he's contrasting wages. We all earn death by our sin. But he says the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a free gift. 
In Romans 4, 4 and 5, Paul makes the same kind of comparison between wages and a gift. He says, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. We all know that. You put in your time, you get your paycheck, you don't bow down in front of your boss and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. That was such a wonderful gift. You know, you take your check and say, I earned every penny of it, maybe more. You know, it's mine. And then Paul continues. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, notice, the ungodly, that's us, his faith is credited as righteousness. And that means this. The main thing that will keep you from Christ, I predict, is your good works. You think, I'm a pretty good person. Hey, you know, yeah, a little good outweighs the bad. I'll be okay on judgment day. The Bible says no, because then you could boast. And so the Bible says we've all sinned. We're all guilty. And yes, there are gradations of judgment in hell. And the Herods of this world will be worse off than the sweet little old ladies who did good deeds. But all of us have sinned. And all of us are guilty. And there's only one remedy for our guilt. The shed blood of Christ on the cross. And the great news is that isn't offered by working for it. It's offered as a free gift that no one would boast. And so the key question this Christmas is, have you received God's gift? Have you trusted Christ alone to save you from your sins? And if you haven't, don't put it off a day. Because as you know, none of us are guaranteed of tomorrow. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. They say, all right, that's all nice, but how do you know it's true? How do you know that's true? I mean, evil has prevailed from day one. Cain slew his brother. And from then on, it has just gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. How do you know that Jesus really is going to come back and fix this whole mess? Well, I believe we can trust God and know that he will certainly save all who come to him because he protected our Savior from destruction in this story. In his treatment of Jesus' birth, Matthew is at pains to show how everything here fulfilled the word of God. Everything fulfilled God's word. And his point is, you can trust that God is going to keep his word, that Jesus is going to return in power and glory, and conquer the enemy, and we will be with him forever in that new heavens and new earth. For example, we saw during the worship time in chapter 1, when Mary became pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1, and 23 says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. He's citing here Isaiah seven fourteen: The virgin shall be with child. And shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which translated means God with us. And so Joseph trusted the word of God. He obeyed God. He took Mary as his wife. And genuine faith of course is not just mental assent. It always results in obedience. 
then in Matthew 2, um, verses 5 and 6, Matthew shows that Jesus' birth in Bethlehem fulfilled the prophecy of Micah 5.2. And then in verse 15, when Matthew uh, says that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus fled to Egypt, Matthew writes, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And here he cites Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. Now Hosea was citing that verse to tell about how God called his son, the people of Israel, out of Egypt at the time of Moses and the Exodus. Matthew wants us to see Jesus is the embodiment of God's perfect son. Unlike Israel, he did not disobey God. He obeyed the Father in everything. And so Jesus is the new Israel. He is um, the, the one who fulfilled what the first exodus pictured. He is the Redeemer who will save his people from their sins. And then, as we've seen in verse 18, even Herod's awful slaughter of these infants in Bethlehem fulfilled Jeremiah's reference to Rachel's sorrow at the time of the Babylonian captivity. But even so, Israel's disobedience and Babylon's merciless slaughter of these people of Israel did not thwart God's promise of the new covenant when he would offer forgiveness of sins uh, through Jesus' blood and be their God. And then finally, down in verse 23... Matthew sees Joseph settling his family in Nazareth as a fulfillment, he says, of what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now there's a problem at this point because there, is not a, there are no Old Testament verses that say he shall be called a Nazarene. So where is Matthew coming from in making that statement? Scholars suggest three main explanations. Uh, first of all, Matthew may be making a play on words because in Hebrew, the word branch is Netzer, which sounds like Nazarene. And um, in Isaiah 11.1, 1, it says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And that word branch is the word Netzer. So he may be making a play on that name. A second explanation is that he may be using Nazarene to refer in general to a derogatory slang term in Jesus' day uh, for a person who is from an insignificant town or a despised person. Uh, a third explanation, and it's the least likely of, in, of the three, uh, Matthew could be referring to Judges chapter 13 and verse 7 where the Lord tells Samson's mother that he will be a Nazarite, but the problem is Jesus wasn't a Nazarite and the term has no connection with Nazareth, so that one's probably not likely. Um, <clears throat> in trying to solve this, it's interesting that in verse 23 is the only time that Matthew uses the word prophets in the plural. The other time, it's through the prophet, through the prophet, through the prophet. Now it's the prophets. So probably he is summing up a theme that is found in several of the prophets, 
and they predicted that Messiah would be despised. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, those passages show Messiah as a worm, Messiah as having no form or likeness that we should be attracted to him. And so probably he is saying the prophets show that he is like the people of Nazareth, despised because of the place he is from. And it may pick up the theme to branch because a branch is insignificant. The tree had been chopped down, but a little sprout sprouts off of it. That's the branch idea. And so Dr. Carson says that affirmed that David's son would emerge from humble obscurity and low estate. Matthew's point, though, in citing all of these different scriptures, uh, is, is to show that in spite of all these evil attempts to kill God's son, God protected him so that he could fulfill his mission, as chapter 1, verse 21 says, to save his people from their sins. And then, when you read to the end of Matthew, there is the great story of the resurrection. And everything in our Christian faith depends upon the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If he is not raised, Paul said, your faith is worthless. But the fact of the resurrection of Jesus is what cinches the whole story and says, I can trust this even if I have to suffer a martyr's death, even if I am persecuted for the sake of righteousness. This is the truth. And I know it because Jesus, God's own son, was raised from the dead. And so he can save me and will, even if I die a horrible death. He is the sovereign Lord. John MacArthur points out, and several other authors, that there are three main responses in Matthew's story of the birth of Jesus. The first is the response of Herod. Jesus threatened Herod. Herod wanted to rule. Jesus was claiming to be an alternate ruler. And that represents people who say, I am in charge of my own life. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And I will not have Jesus to rule over me. That's a bad, bad choice. Bad way to respond. The second response is that of the Jewish leaders. These are people, they knew the Bible. They could cite immediately, oh, Micah 5.2, that's where Messiah will be born. Yep, good stuff. And they wouldn't even bother to walk five miles down to Bethlehem to see that their own Savior and Messiah had been born. And, you know, their indifference, sadly, later turned to hostility when Jesus confronted their sin and they refused to submit to Jesus as Lord. They were in the religion game, but they didn't know Jesus because they would not bow before him as their Lord and Savior. The third response is that of the Magi. And even though they were pagan Gentiles and into false religion with their astrology, they made this long and difficult trip to Bethlehem and they sought out Jesus until they found him, and then they bowed before him in worship. And in the same vein, you have Mary and Joseph. And they could have bailed on the program and said, hey, you know, the scorn, 
of me marrying a young woman who's pregnant from the Holy Spirit. How many are going to believe that? And in that day, that was quite a shameful thing. But they submitted to the word of God and bowed before him and said, we will bear the reproach and we will follow Jesus, the Savior of all. And so Matthew is saying this, be like the Magi, be like Joseph and Mary, trust in Jesus as your Savior and worship Jesus as your Lord, no matter what difficulties may come into your life, you can trust him because he is the one who fulfilled the scripture. He is the one who has risen from the dead and you can trust that someday there will be rewards throughout eternity for all who trust in him. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you've never responded personally to Jesus as your Savior, the Bible says that the wrath of God is on you. Scary words, but that's what it says. If you haven't obeyed the Son, the wrath of God abides on you, John 3.36. But you can move from that camp to having the blessing of God on your life through one thing turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. And it's on the heart level that that happens. And God knows your heart this morning. If you recognize, oh God, I have sinned against you, then all my good deeds are not going to count because of my sin. But Jesus bore my sin. I trust in him. Then God will credit your faith to you as righteousness. Dear Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray for my brothers and sisters who may be going through trials they don't understand and difficulties that just don't make sense. That they would trust you in this and realize that you're working your sovereign purpose in all these hardships for your namesake and your glory. Help us to trust you, Lord, in the new year as Unforeseen trials will undoubtedly come into some of our lives. And know that you're working all things together for good to those who love you, to those who are called according to your purpose. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.